Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I am joined as always by my Liftoff co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Jason. How's it going? It was good. That was very rousing. Like I felt like standing up. Energy. I'm said, I, said my name. I am standing up right now. That is how excited I am about this show. Are you standing up? I am. Look at you. Oh, yeah, your de- you, uh, my desk goes fancy, up and down. Yeah, uh-huh. the fancy desk that, that moves. Yeah. I don't have that. Anyways, we're here. It's episode 12. It and, is. Uh, it's a it dozen is, fortnights. <laughs> it is a dozen fortnights. Uh, so we have uh, a fun episode lined up. We've got an interview later on with uh, Jeff Morse, who works at uh, Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville on their National Space Station team. But first, we have some pre-flight checklist items we do as we always do the first one is from uh listener jonathan uh, jonathan sent us this article it's it's a couple years old it's, it's actually when bad astronomy was still over on discover uh magazine.com ah. but there's this video it's i don't remember how long it is it's a it's a you know maybe eight minutes long i've watched this i watched this yeah. i think when phil plate posted this in 2012 yeah uh, yeah, about halfway through it, it's like, I've seen this before, but basically it's, it is a look at the sod rocket boosters uh, during a space shuttle launch. Yeah. So you, you see them ignite, you see them fly, and then you see them uh, be jettisoned from the stack and then return to Earth. And it really is something. Um, the sound is just incredible. I played it really loud in my office and it was just, uh, it was a lot of fun. And the thing that I kind of walked away from was just how hard they hit the ocean. <laughs> like it, it really is startling when you're watching this like full screen on your computer uh, to see just how hard that impact is, even with the the parachutes they use to slow it down. But I thought it was I thought it was fun since we'd been talking about the space shuttle. I thought it'd be a fun thing to point our listeners to. Yeah, it struck me um, in watching it about how long after they're kind of done before they land. But mm-hmm. but you've got to think they're actually moving really fast at that point when they cut out. Um, and so they've got to, they've got to slow down the earth's gravity has to slow them all the way down to no speed. And then they need to speed up and then return and return takes a while. Yeah. Cause they're still moving forward. I mean, yeah. there's lots of momentum there. Yeah. Just, I mean, you see the, them drop off of the shuttle, but, but that's because the shuttle is, is still being driven by the main engines and it's continuing to accelerate. And at that point when they drop off and they, and they're out of uh, their own propellant, they are not accelerating anymore, but it's not like they're decelerating yet. They're they're or they're decelerating, but they're still moving forward, and the deceleration continues to zero. And only then, so you know, it's uh, it's science, it's it's physics. They you turn off the, uh, you're moving really fast, and you turn off the engine. You don't stop moving. You keep moving forward, and then gravity finally has its effect, and that's what happens. So it's it's a long ride. It's a surprisingly long ride. There's the super exciting part, and then there's the part where it's they're sort of swirling and whirling and eventually smashing into the ocean and it's it's interesting um i'm not sure i kind of assumed that that will be a similar situation when these things are reused on the sls there's a a pretty neat article over on spaceflight insider about how the srbs are being re-nozzled and reworked uh to basically to be put back into service when the space launch system comes online here in just a couple years yeah. Recycling in action. It is. I mean, it's funny when you look at the pictures of the space launch, launch system, you're like, yep, that looks familiar. Right. Those SRBs. But they're, they're what, what did we say in a previous show? It's the, like the most powerful 
um, rocket ever made yeah. in terms of uh, the amount of thrust it gets for the weight mm-hmm. that it is. They are incredibly powerful. So, yep. of course. So, so we're going to see our, our old friend, the SRB, again uh, yep. here just uh, in a couple of years. Yeah. We want to touch base too. We spoke a couple of episodes ago uh, about the new federal budget here in the United States it was getting ready to be passed. It has been passed, and like we mentioned, it was actually a larger budget for NASA than had been anticipated. And with that came some, you know, it's not just here's a pile of money, right? It comes with some restrictions. It comes yeah. with some budget items you build, need to spend. Build a lander for Europa, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's an article over on planetary.org that sort of breaks that down a little bit into some of those other things that are specifically called for within the budget, including a deep space habitat uh, for $55 million. Um, and uh, a couple other things. It's just kind of an interesting roadmap of you know what the budget calls for, what will uh, be worked on starting this year. And you know there's always the possibility that the the budget isn't there so that some of this stuff could begin now and, and not necessarily you know be fully realized but uh, lots of stuff going on uh, with this additional funding from congress yeah it's interesting this is the the challenge is piecing together a mission and one of the challenges i think with the deep space habitat thing with a commercial well not with a commercial crew with the with the sls uh and orion and you know all all of the all of these things that they've talked about is there are pieces but it still kind of lacks coherence it, it is um you know we don't have a as far as i know we do not have an official roadmap of like exactly how we get to uh you know a mars landing in 2040 let's say it doesn't exist. It, there are a lot of sort of feelings like uh, we're going to try these things and these are all leading to somewhere, but the somewhere isn't clear. And there's a little cloud with a question mark in there somewhere and a miracle happens here. And uh, that, that's the that's the troubling part of uh, of all of this is that is that there, there are, you know, there are people who I think know where they want to go. But the challenge is that they that there isn't a commitment to all of the details. It's all just sort of. Uh, uh, one piece after another, hoping to get somewhere, and and that, I find that a little disquieting because it doesn't take very uh, much time for a, a a government, whether it's a president or a Congress, to decide. You know, we're not going to do that, and you, you've got to have that commitment for whatever twenty, thirty years. And at, at any point in there, if the commitment falters, then the whole thing falls apart, and you're starting maybe not from scratch, but. Um, but from from behind. So I don't know. It's uh, it's good to see that the NASA got funded and it got more funding than it expected. And uh, everybody's trying to move forward. That part is good. It's just you know there's still this mystery. Like the whole space launch system is being built, but what's it being? What's what's the plan? What's it being built for? How's it going to be used? I feel like I, I saw a lot of the people on my space Twitter feed this week grousing about the fact that it's a very expensive system that's being built but nobody really has a clear idea of all the ways it will be used and that that's you know there's truth in that it, it, it's um yeah I, I think after the international space station which we're going to talk to jeff about a little bit later people are a little concerned about you know you can't just build something you need to you need to really know what it's for and how it's going to be used and i think in the science community right now there's some skepticism about um NASA's not the not not necessarily the details, but like the the big picture. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's fair, and uh, it's 
in that conversation, I think back to the time leading up to the Apollo mission where you had Mercury and Gemini and then Apollo and all these really clear building blocks, right? right? Each mission was built on everything that would have been learned from the previous missions. And I agree with you. It is, it is a little strange to be going into this new phase of exploration without that clear of a roadmap. And I, I think NASA's tried to do it. You know, they've got some stuff public that, like you said, is it's sort of, I don't want to say hand wavy, but sort of hand wavy yeah. in places. Yeah, uh, I think I think people are concerned that if they if they set dates or if they name phases, that their things are going to change and they're going to look bad because then once you set uh, something in uh, and and announce it. Uh, that's when we've learned this talking about Apple stuff, right? It's like, you know, if if you announce something and then change it, then people can really rightfully ding you for having delayed something or or deferred something or changed your mind. And if you don't announce anything and are just hazy, it's a lot harder to get something to point at and say, ha ha, you, uh, you know, you delayed this, you delayed this product launch, right? You delayed this space launch. Um, and yet I feel like, you know, that's, I think that's what we really ultimately need is we need somebody, we need, we need the president and Congress and NASA to say, we, we, I feel like we're close enough now that it, that we need to we can't get closer just by randomly having I mean, it's not random but by having little little bits I I feel like there there needs to come a time when everybody in the United States uh, hears here's how we're going to do this and here's why we're spending the money we're spending and I realize that that's marketing and and I also realize that that's opening yourself up to criticism if you can't make the dates and things change at the same time saying here are these missions they're going to do this and they're going to be on these years and here's these missions and here's this and here's how this all builds together and leads to this end goal it's like a little more clarity and a little less hand waving even if you're risking being wrong is probably going to be required at some point here and I, I feel like we're getting closer to the point where um, they're not going to be able to wave their hands anymore. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So on the heels of that, let's talk about this uh, next uh, telescope yeah, project. Yeah, let's talk about space telescopes. So everybody should know there's the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a hilarious story of a thing that everybody thought would cost like $1.2 billion, and it's going to cost more than $3 billion. But the money's been spent. It's going to launch in 2018, probably. It's all, you know, that that, that was a project that was... Uh, kind of infamous for its cost overruns but it is a it is a big uh uh you know it's not measuring the same things as the hubble and the hubble since it's been refurbed i read a story today that said that it you know it might last another it's not on its last legs necessarily it might last for for uh quite a while longer but the james webb much more advanced space telescope launching in 2018 the news is that nasa is now starting to lay the groundwork for their next space telescope it's going to go at the Lagrange point, uh, uh, I think L2, that, that is about a million miles away from the Earth, um, but but uh, stable uh, gravitationally, uh, the same place the James Webb t- Space Telescope is going. And this this new space telescope that they're working on is called W-First, Wide Field Infrared Space Telescope. And the plan is to launch it in the mid-2020s. Um, and one of the funny things about it is that its main telescope instrument is actually already built because it was going to be in a spy satellite and the spy satellite got canned and the spy people the intelligence agencies whoever owns that the air force i don't know who owns that has basically handed it off to nasa and said you can use this we're not going to use this so that's going to be one of the main instruments on on the w first mission so it's just a uh, 
it's interesting, but it's also um, telling, I think, about space and how long it takes to get things done. Uh, because not b- just because it's a huge bureaucracy, but because space is so hard that, um, you know, the James Webb telescope isn't even up yet. And the, the process of building the next uh, space telescope is already commencing. We'll put it in our long-term follow-up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Check back in 10 years yeah. and it may be up there. In, in a little bit uh, closer timeline, uh, there's some news out of China this week uh, that they are planning 20 launches for 2016, which is actually one more. 2015, they had uh, they had 19 successful launches. And there's some pretty interesting stuff uh, on this schedule. Um, the one I really wanted to point out was uh, the Tingyang-2, which is a Chinese space laboratory. Yep. Which is pretty cool. They've... Um, I think it was initially, I feel like this has been in and out of the news for years. I think it was scheduled like 2010 or 2011, um, but then it's finally on the books to be launched this year, which is uh, which is fun, uh, talking about the, the space station. This is uh, obviously smaller, I think, cruise size of three with like tw- like three weeks of life support resources. This is not a long-term outpost, basically. It's a uh, somewhat yeah. of a, a, a temporary thing to go... Uh, do some space uh, science and then and then come back. The uh, you know it, it's interesting. China spending a lot of time and effort on space stuff um, at a time when there there's uh, you know questions about like the U.S. can't get anybody to space right now and the Russian program may be uh, reducing its uh, its uh, its budgets. Um, uh, nationalism is really good for space. I think Jeff may talk about this too a little bit, but I went to a presentation last week by a, a guy who's involved in uh, various NASA um, Mars mission planning, and I'm hoping maybe we'll get him on the show sometime. Um, it was a really great presentation, but he said, um, you know, China being really interested in space is good for uh, everybody because uh, the reason that the Apollo missions happened is because the Russians were doing so well in space and the United States said, what can we do where we can plausibly beat the Russians and thus began the Apollo program. And, uh, you know, maybe this, maybe seeing China building space stations and going and, you know, maybe putting people on the moon in the next decade may be a motivator for uh, the United States and other parts of the world that do do you want to seed uh, exploration in space to another country? Because believe it or not, you know, rightly or not, nationalism, even though all the problems that go with it, it has that effect, uh, that crystallizing effect on people and the politicians who fund them and the voters who vote in the politicians. And uh, so, you know, it's I think it's great to see it from a humankind investigating outer space perspective that China is working on this. And I also feel like this is a kick in the complacency of uh, other countries. And that's a great thing, too. Yeah, agreed. Juno Cam. I have news uh, from Jupiter. Yes, news from Jupiter. Two news, two news things from Jupiter. Juno Cam. Um, just Emily Lactawalla wrote a nice piece on the Planetary Society blog that we can link to. But um, Juno is is cruising to Jupiter. It's uh, six months away. Uh, it actually became in the last week the most distant solar powered spacecraft. Usually, when we send things to the outer solar system, they are um, nuclear powered. But Juno is solar powered. It's got these big solar arrays, and it's you know it's one twenty fifth the solar radiation at Jupiter as it is on the on the Earth. So it's uh it's a, it's a testament to the fact that our solar technology on Earth has gotten a lot better, and that our technology, our computer technology, has gotten a lot less power hungry 
Um, and you put those two things together and you can send a solar powered probe to Jupiter, which is what uh, Juno is, which is pretty awesome. But um, it's got this, it's spinning to remain stable. And so its camera data is, is kind of weird and hard to process and, uh, you know, but they post it. It's it, that, that's all kind of interesting. And, and her, her post talks about that. But the one that I caught my eye is this idea of crowd using crowdsourcing, using uh, citizen astronomers to help the project. And it has to do with the fact that Jupiter, since it doesn't have a surface per se, it's just got a, a face that we see that's the cloud tops. Um, and they're always changing. And that means that you can't really make a map of Jupiter because the map, well, you can, but you have to make a map sort of for every orbit that Juno will do because the clouds keep moving. <laughs> and if you want to target a particular area for analysis, you can't look at a photo from eight months ago because it doesn't look like that anymore. And that, that feature isn't there anymore. So they actually have this crowdsourcing thing where people can upload their, their pictures that they take like in their backyard or wherever of Jupiter, you know, the, the amateur, but not necessarily like beginner, but amateur astronomers uploading their images of Jupiter, um, as a way to help the people who are involved in Juno, um, have a map of, uh, what, uh, what the face of Jupiter looks like on a given day and the evolution of the, of the, um, service, well, the, the face we have to say of Jupiter. I, I just thought it was kind of a cool story that they're actually asking people to upload their images of, of Jupiter night by night so that they can uh, use them as a, as a guide for, um, for building a map so that then they can crowdsource, uh, uh, target areas on the surface or on the face, the, the cloud tops of Jupiter. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. It's hard to talk about Jupiter because, you know, it, it has what looks like a surface, but isn't a surface and don't call it a surface. I, I just, I just watched a, um, was it a movie or a TV show. I just saw something where, where, where they were talking about sending somebody to the surface of Jupiter. And I said, Nope, <laughs> it's from the sixties. I'm like, no, no, that's not how it works. But yeah. Yeah. Gas giants are, are, are weird. Yeah, yeah, we got to do an episode about that. But we uh, should, you know, all of our little rocky planet words like surface don't really apply to uh, right to to places like Jupiter. Right. Uh, the the last item I had uh, put together for this is a, a it's like a three page article over on Ars Technica where they were able to take a look at some of the. Uh, items, some of the space items that, that NASA has collected over the years. So this is down in, at Johnson in Houston, Texas, and stuff like uh, moon rocks being, I think, the vast majority of the, of, the, of the volume of samples they have there are from the Apollo missions. But everything from, from that to meteorites, uh, including some from Mars, which is an interesting story in here. Uh, and it's a, a neat look at how this these samples are preserved. Um, and, and in some cases how they're collected, they talked about the Stardust spacecraft, which I had, I had honestly forgotten about Stardust, the Stardust project, but it was designed to fly through, basically through the tail of a comet and, and catch uh, its catch particles from that, uh, that tail and gather the material. And then, they also exposed the same surface to basically just out in space away from the comet to compare what sort of particles would be caught. And these things, I mean, they're, they're very tiny particles and they're in these little, the article describes it as like a tile, a tile grid of gel. Um, hmm. So as it flew through uh, behind the comet or flew through space, the 
particles would hit the gel and get embedded and then they can take them out of the tray and kind of see what they've caught. It's, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, everything from big, heavy moon rocks to tiny, tiny little particles that you can't see without a microscope, everything in between they've got stored down there. It's pretty cool. It is cool. A lot of good uh, space coverage over at Ars Technica these days. I love that they, they are committed to covering uh, space stuff. Good. Absolutely. Uh, they're doing a good job and you're, you're seeing more of it. I mean, the Verge has uh, space, a couple of space reporters now too. It has definitely become something that, uh, I mean, l- let's look at us, <laughs> right? I mean, it's become mm-hmm. something that is, is in the media more and more, which I think is exciting. So, yeah. All right. So we are getting ready to be joined uh, by a special guest. But before we get to that, Jason, do you want to tell us about our first sponsor this week? Yes, absolutely. So this uh, episode of Liftoff brought to you by our our good friends and supporters of the show, Luminos uh, from Wobbleworks. Luminos is the all-in-one mobile astronomy app. Uh, We told you about it before. It works on your iPhone, but it also works on your iPad and it even works on your Apple Watch. It's been in development for more than a decade and it brings the power of those big desktop astronomy programs to mobile devices. Uh, this is the sixth year now of free feature updates. Uh, no in-app purchases, no paid updates. You buy, you buy the app, you get the app, and you get the updates. Luminos 9 now, uh, which brings the largest star catalog available anywhere on mobile to all of your mobile devices. It's got the complete UCAC4, which is a catalog of uh, up to 113 million stars. There's a lot of data, a lot of stars out there. Big universe. Uh, You choose which catalog size best fits your needs and storage, and then you download that. So basically you can say how much of this, and it prioritizes and downloads that data. And you can augment that catalog with free supplemental data, photometry, proper motion, all sorts of other cool stuff and luminos 9 supports the latest ios 9 features including split screen multitasking and spotlight search and the luminos app for apple watch was updated for watch os 2 so it's faster and more reliable wobbleworks is a family business they have combined more than 50 years of software experience and they've created luminos to delight current astronomy fans and to create new ones it includes detailed planet and moon maps tens of thousands of asteroids and comets millions of stars control for your wireless uh, control for your telescopes via wireless it's it's a i don't know if it's a wireless telescope do telescopes have wires they don't have wires you can wirelessly control your telescope using luminos pretty cool uh check out luminos at wobbleworks.com and thank you to wobbleworks and luminos for sponsoring liftoff once again so this week on liftoff we are joined by a very special guest jeff morris is a payload rack officer Uh, he works at the nasa marshall space flight center in huntsville alabama working on the international space station uh jeff welcome to the show thank you Stephen and jason it's great to be with you it's good it's good to have you um you know, we, we've spoken to several people over the course of the show and, and talked about a bunch of topics already, but we really haven't made it to the uh, space station quite yet. I thought it'd be a fun way to kind of uh, dive into that topic, to talk to somebody who is quite literally on the ground working on uh, what's going on uh, on the space station. So c- tell us a little bit about what you do, what a payload rack officer is, and kind of what all that involves. Okay, the payload rack officer is one of two of the really technical positions that are done at uh, NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, the uh, Payload Operations and Integration Center, or POIC, but we're always called Marshall, um, between the payload rack officers and the data management coordinators. 
we make sure that all science racks and payloads have power, command capability, uh, data telemetry coming back, including health and status. They have all the cooling they need, whether it's air cooling or water cooling. And there, there are a few other, and you know, electrical power, and also a good sturdy place to hold their equipment. Um, so those are the things that we worry about on an everyday basis and monitor 24-7. Uh, there are two payload rack officers on console uh, here in Huntsville uh, every day of the week, three shifts a day, rare exceptions for things like Christmas and New Year's and this weekend, the weekends for Christmas and New Year's were optional for sort of the, the number two person. And I only know that because I worked a midnight shift on Christmas <laughs> Day, which made my wife really happy. But, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, so, you know, we are the technical experts and really and truly own the racks. And uh, we don't own the payloads. The payload developers own the payloads. But, um, you know, that we, we make sure that everybody's got what they need to do the science that, they, that they're ready to do. Gotcha. So, so, so we're actually talking about a very, in a, in a very real way, a very physical part of what's going on on the space station. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a, a couple examples here that will make it a little easier. Okay, so when you think of a rack, and they talk about you know, different size racks on the space station, they're all roughly the size of a refrigerator. Um, the racks that they've sort of highlighted in the last week or so uh, have been the fluids integration rack called FUR, and the combustion integrated rack called SIR. Both of those racks are managed by a payload development team out of NASA Glenn Research Center, which is in Cleveland, Ohio. And so when they're ready to do their science, they need to essentially be turned on. They need power, they need cooling, they need smoke detection, and then they need their data coming back. And it's the, the payload rack officer's job, the pro's job, to go in there and do that entire activation process and watch everything happen in real time, make sure it comes up correctly. If it doesn't come up correctly, we obviously have procedures to tell us what to do. Uh, we don't get to bring this up completely on our own. Uh, if we use power, uh, Mission Control down in Houston, they're concerned that suddenly if we're going to start up the fur rack, there's 750 watts of power that's going to get sucked off of those batteries. You know, we have to let them know, even though it's on the timeline, you know, you know, talk to your counterparts down there and make sure that, you know, we know that we're about to draw power. We're about to take some cooling off the system and, and make sure that uh, everything is up to date and there haven't been any last minute gotchas that would say that we, we can't do what we need to do here in 30 minutes to an hour. So whenever we talk about the racks, whether it's an express rack or FUR or SIR or WARF or MSG or MSRR, or the Melfies, or let me see if I can name all the other racks off the top of my head. I don't think I can. Uh, that, those are what you're, you're hearing about it, is the racks. And then you'll often see that there are payloads going inside the racks, especially with the express racks. And then when you talk about uh, platforms like nano racks, the nano racks actually goes inside of an express rack. So it's kind of a platform mm. inside of a platform type of a situation. But so it's just our responsibility to make sure that they have everything they need. And uh, so we stay in constant contact with the uh, payload developers and make sure that, you know, everything's going according to plan and, you know, they don't need to activate or deactivate early or late. 
Is everything a rack? I mean, I know that you're working on science experiments, but is sort of everything everything stored in the space station rack-based, or is this just one part of how the space station works? Most everything is in a rack, but you know, not everything is just at the rack level. I'll give you an example. The two human research facility racks that are in uh, Columbus, the ESA lab module, um, those items, uh, they have a lot of experiments inside of them. They have storage for um, you know, sa- samples after they've been run through their refrigerated centrifuge. Uh, they have a computer associated with them. So they have all of these things that are all, at the end of the day, stored inside the rack. Uh, say for maybe the laptop, which would be on one of the little bogon arms that if you ever see video of the space station, you see stuff stick, uh, sticking out off a seat track all over the place, and it's usually computers. But So anytime you look at video of the space station, um, you're, you're seeing racks uh, down the sides and top and bottom and all mm. that. So, um, But you know there, there are payloads inside of that. To talk about the express racks, just to sort of take that to uh, a different level, we have eight of them across the space station. Uh, express racks one, two, six, seven, and eight are in the U.S. lab module. Uh, express racks three is in the Columbus module, and express racks four and five are, are in the Japanese module, which is called Kibo, but we never call it Kibo, much like we never call the lab Destiny, even though those are their artistic names. So. This with with the with the racks here. I mean, is the is a way I'm trying to understand sort of how your relationship with the stuff up there. You, it sounds like you and your group are are are. Would it be fair to say that you're almost like the remote IT support for the for for this stuff? Because obviously you can't send somebody up there. You've got your astronauts up there uh, working on this stuff. But it is you know you're monitoring all of these racks and providing. Are, are you are you troubleshooting? Are you 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 said you're turning things on and off? Is that um? Are you doing that on your own? Are you doing that working with astronauts directly? I'm just I'm trying to get a better picture of sort of how the the day to day management of of this equipment goes. And the answer to that really, Jason, is some of all of yeah, all, uh, of, all of that. All right. Um, you know, a lot of the times we do things completely independently. The astronauts, if we're turning on an express rack payload, you know, chances are. They're not going to have anything to do with it. If Nanorax is running some uh, different science modules inside their platform, inside an express rack, the only crew interaction is going to be to put the modules in and to take the modules out at the end of the day. Mm. Something like human resource facility, they're going to be actively using the resources that that rack has. They're going to be doing you know, ocular health studies and, you know, this fluid shifts experiment that they've been talking about this week, even though that's a Russian experiment, from the best of my understanding, it is being done uh, with, uh, in the Columbus module. So, you know, they have to do uh, a lot with, with those things. Uh, if we have to uh, store in a deep freeze uh, samples from somewhere uh, Around the station, we use the um, Melfi racks, which are big, huge freezers, and uh, the crew has to do the the insert and then the close back. Every time they open that door, we see it on the ground, and then we have temperature sensors, four sensors per each one of the well, sixteen sensors per each one of the four doors. Uh, we know where they put stuff, and we know how the how long the door was open, 
and we can almost guesstimate the temperature of the sample by how much the temperature changes inside the rack. So we're watching that at all times to make sure everything is running normally, but your question about troubleshooting, well, what happens if something goes wrong uh, with a, a particular payload uh, or with one of the racks? Well, you know, we're there, we diagnose the problem, we look at historical data, we take our procedures, we go to our payload ops director who runs uh, the uh, Marshall POIC, and you know, in concert with the flight director at Mission Control in Houston, we come up with a good response for uh, what needs to be done, and then we go off and execute it once uh, flight and pod have said, here, you're good to go. So it's, it's a little of all of the above. You know, the crew sometimes is really involved with stuff, because it, you know, it's something that measures them, or they have to test in response. Uh, sometimes they're the actual conductors of the experiment. There was an experiment uh, that they ran back in August called Spheres, which was this uh, cylindrical volume that had sort of dome shapes on one end, uh, on each end. So it would look like a big, you know, pill capsule. It's clear plastic, had fluid in there uh, with a dye in it. And if you spun around and around and around and around in a circle, eventually all the fluid would go to one end. And what the science question was, what happens when you stop? You know, on Earth, it, it sloshes around and it falls to the bottom of the thing. Obviously, microgravity, that's not going to happen. So, you know, the astronauts there were the conductors of the experiment. And Scott Kelly and Shell Lindgren ran that thing for like an hour and 10 minutes, and they were only were supposed to do that for like, 25 or 30, they took some of their own free time at lunch to do that experiment because it was really cool for them to do. That was a lot of fun to sit there and watch them do that. And those are the, those are the things that make this job really interesting or when we can see the crew really having a good time doing what they're doing. So I've got a, a totally mundane question, which is, how are the hours? And I say that because is the is the space station running twenty four seven? I mean, obviously the equipment is, but are they? Do they sleep in shifts, or do the, does the crew bed down? And do you have people who have to work around the clock uh, in Alabama, or do you hand off control to other groups somewhere else in the world? How does the how does that? Because I hear these stories about you know the people who are working on the Mars rovers having to sleep uh, a Mars twenty five hour day, which means that they're moving. You know, every twenty five days they've wrapped around. I, I, how does it work uh, for the ISS? Is it a are you, are you working weird hours from time to time, or is it pretty regimented? It, it's I'm definitely working weird hours, and I feel really bad for the uh, the people that have to do a twenty five hour day. It's bad enough rotating around a twenty four hour day and doing it three shifts at a time. Uh, the crew is nominally awake from o six hundred to twenty hundred. GMT, so um, they keep almost my curly time. <laughs> um, except I think Mike probably stays up a little later. Yeah, he's a bad example um, because he's not like most. But yeah, yeah like yeah, GMT. It's like a London Londoner's time. It is. We uh, staff the uh, let's see, it's the U.S. control team, which includes Houston and Huntsville, and the Munich control team, which is the ESA people. Um, they are on a schedule where we turn over at central time, 700 uh, central to 1500, so 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
is what we call orbit two. That's the daytime shift, and then thirteen hundred, fifteen hundred to twenty three hundred is the quote unquote swing shift because the crew is asleep for almost all of that shift, and so we don't do a lot of interaction with the crew when you're working on swing shifts. And then the midnight shift is from 11 p.m. wrapping back around to 7 a.m. So in terms of crew activities, you're going to see more if you're working orbit one or the midnight shift or orbit two uh, for the day shift. But it's a little more humane than having to get, you know, to go into work at, you know, 10, 10, 30 at night and be there till 7 a.m. and fight every instinct that you have to be asleep. And mm -hmm. then we do four on and then four off. So that's that's our standard rotation. So, yeah, I mentioned Christmas. I worked uh, four midnight shifts, the 17th through the 20th, because I'm the new guy. Went and did family stuff with my wife's family, uh, you know, later that day and all the way back to the 24th, and then hop right back into it and then work midnight shifts 25th through the 28th. And uh, that was a little bit brutal. And then I only took two days off because I picked up some shift, and then I worked the 31st through the 5th. But thankfully, those were on day shifts, so... It was somewhat approximating a normal human being's sleeping pattern. <laughs> so but you're cycling through the different shifts, right? Or are you mostly working the bad shifts these days? Well, you know, I got stuck with some of the bad shifts a little bit uh, from one choice that I made, and also just because I'm the new guy mm. uh, in December. But it's uh, relaxing a little bit here. Uh, I'm still in what they call the burn-in phase, where uh, we have to work console heavy is what we call it working all the time so you're working four days on four days off and you're rotating from the midnight shift to the day shift to the swing shift and back around wow. so last night finished up my last of four swing shifts so i'll start on mids here again in a few days and work some more of those and then have four days off and then work four days so it's nice that they give you four days to get your sleep schedule back in order just so it right. can get blasted out again <laughs> Right, yeah. Well, the big problem, and, and once in December, because I thought I was heroic and forgot that I wasn't 25 anymore, uh, I decided that I would work two midday, two midnight shifts and then four day shifts the next day. Um, yeah, that was a terrible idea uh, because I forgot the fundamental problem. If you're working a midnight shift, the smartest way to work it is so that that's the end of your day and you go home and you try to sleep. And then you wake up in the afternoon and your wife and your kids, if you're married or, you know, your friends, whoever you're going to see in the evening, now that they've worked a normal person's schedule for the, uh, for the day, they're awake and alive and going. But when you work a swing shift, you know, that might be the end of your day. But if, if you're working a day shift, it's very much the early part of your day. You know, I wake up 445, 5 o'clock in the morning to be there uh, in time for a 7 a.m. shift. Um, you know, that's just, it is the thing. So the sleep really does make it hard. That's honestly the hardest part about adjusting to that because that fourth day of working a midnight shift and your body knows all I've got to do is get through this one and I can go home and I can sleep. So, uh, But the thing, you're talking about the Mars people, uh, with station, it is so much different than everything else that NASA has done prior to it. You know, We've had permanent man capability since November 2, 2000, and we've had POIC doing payload support since sometime in March of 2001. Well, 15 years plus 
of constant console coverage for anywhere from, at our slowest point, maybe 28 people, uh, sans the, payload, the scientists and engineers that are actually running experiments to on a day shift. When you have backroom support, there may be 200 people involved uh, helping to fly the International Space Station. Um, that has never been done before by NASA. You know, you look at the Gene Kranzes of the world. Yeah, so he was really, really busy probably in the month leading up to the launch, maybe even the first two months leading up to the launch. And then he was busy doing the debrief in the month or two after the launch. But at some point, they settled down to a, a normal person's schedule, which knowing people working the Apollo project meant 50 hours a week instead of 70. Um, but it's relentless here. You know, we, we're working 24-7, 365, and it doesn't matter what, we're, we're still going at it. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off. When it comes to giving yourself a place online, there's nowhere better to start than Squarespace. They put all the power you need into your hands and take away the pain points like worrying about hosting, scaling, or what to do if you get stuck with something. With Squarespace, you can build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of skill level, no coding required. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools that can make your website look and feel exactly how you want. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site that ensures security and stability. They are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world, including Relay. We run our blog and our store on the Squarespace platform. And their site templates are really stunning to look at. They all feature responsive design, so you don't have to worry about what your site will look like on various devices. They look great on all size of device. Get a new iPad Pro, looks good there, all the way down to a smartphone. But this is just getting started. Squarespace has tons of awesome features like 24-7 support with live chat and email. They have teams in New York, Dublin, and Portland uh, who are there to help you no matter what. They have a commerce platform. I mentioned earlier, we run our, our merchandise store on it. And it's super easy to go in and add a store to your Squarespace site with a few clicks. You'll be taking orders and uh, collecting money. It's, it's really great, it's safe, and it's secure. They have a new cover page program to build great-looking single-page websites, all with rock-solid fast hosting and so much more. Now, if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, you can check out their dev platform. You can dig in with the code and tinker with your Squarespace site. And when you sign up for a year, you'll also get a free domain name, allowing you to choose exactly what you want your site to be called. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month. You can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. When you do decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. Thank you, Squarespace, for the support of LiftOff and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Does the international aspect of the station ever ever come into play day to day? You have obviously you have the United States and you have Russia, but then you have uh, astronauts from other various countries spending time on the station. Uh, how often, or or you know, how often does that sort of thing come up where you're working with uh, someone who may be on a different, you know, the other side of the world, uh, trying to get a job done? Well, 
for one, working with the crew, if they're not native English speakers, you have to learn how to um, understand what they're saying and understand how they're speaking on a radio loop, which is not a perfect thing. It's probably not even as good as the Skype connection is. So you have to learn that language barrier not only just from, you know, it's not a native thing uh, to that speaker, but also, you know, you're trying to figure out accents and uh, pronunciations. And uh, so that makes it interesting. It doesn't make it difficult. Uh, and you get that with the flight control teams, too. If you talk to Munich, you never know what nationality you're going to get on the other end of the phone. Sometimes you get Russian, sometimes you get German, sometimes you get French. Every once in a while, you'll get a Brit. Uh, we all love right now that Tim Peake is on the space station, and he's got this jolly, great British accent that, you know, Americans just, hey, it's a British accent. We don't know which one. But so it's really still a little joyful even a few weeks in when you hear him pipe up on one of the space ground loops to, to know he's there. But, you know, for the people whose uh, first language isn't English, it is difficult. And I'm sure it's more difficult for them than it really and truly it is for us here in the U.S. Because, you know, sure, we're frustrated that we're not understanding them 100%. But they've got to be really frustrated that they know how to communicate this clearly in their native tongue. But, you know, this English stuff is, you know, a lot more difficult just because of how you communicate in English versus, you know, how you communicate in, in other languages. And uh, that's not really a, you know... It's it's a difficulty, but you know, it's a difficulty that we all share, all across all the flight control teams and with all the astronauts. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting. Um, it's an extra uh, added degree of of fun necessarily, but uh, it, it's I think it's good. The international aspect of the space station I think is extremely important. Uh, we don't have the unlimited funds that we had in the sixties and seventies to do. Uh, space exploration. So I think it's very important that the world's nations that are spacefaring decide to come together a little bit and uh, pool resources and figure out how they can uh, best work together. And this is a great avenue for doing that, not only for the astronauts and the flight control teams, but it's also for the scientists and engineers that are running experiments on the station. So we've, you know, you mentioned having done this 24 uh, seven support of the space station, uh, for coming up 15 years, um, and we know that uh, th there are always discussions about the what the end of life for the International Space Station looks like. I know that there's been some extension of that, but um, at some point, um, unless there's a new plan to to recycle parts of the containers, I mean, at some point, um, this station is going to be uh, pretty old. And uh, I I'm curious what you think about it. Sort of like what happens at the end of the of the usable life of of the space station if there is uh, if the if that uh, comes to pass. Well, Jason, I've got actually some experience. I have not been doing the uh, the payload rack officer thing for, for very long. Really, only the last year or so. Uh, sort of in my previous life in aerospace, uh, I built a lot of uh, essentially uh, boxes to carry cargo, the big outside stored cargo uh, on the space station, the, uh, the big ammonia pump circulators that Luca Parmitano was working on, changing one out when all of a sudden his uh, helmet started having the leak in it, uh, the, the, all the different electrical equipment to pull power off of 
uh, the solar arrays and you know condition it and sort it all that's there you know we pre-positioned a lot of that stuff in the late 2000s and, and in 2010 and uh, even right up to the last shuttle flight we put all this hardware up there well all that hardware will eventually break and we have two spare ammonia pump circulators and eventually those two will break and we won't have any replacements and when the next one breaks it's not a good situation uh, we lose a lot of capability when we can't reject heat back out to the void of space because it has nowhere to go. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's really a problem because we don't have the lift capability to move some of those really big components up there uh, as we used to when we had the space shuttle. You know, the Progress can't do it. Neither one of the American commercial rockets can do it. Uh, they're, I think they're probably trying to get there. And I know that you know, on the day we record, NASA is doing a, a big announcement about the future of uh, cargo missions to the space station. So I don't know exactly what that would entail. But we've got to have more uplift capability than we currently do have because eventually you know, these pieces of hardware that are anywhere from you know, 150 to 300 pounds and, you know, as big as like four foot uh, by four foot by five foot, which won't fit in anything that we have, um, they've got to be replaced. And so that's going to make practicality of extending the, show, the station's life much past like 2025 or so pretty unrealistic in it, as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of ideas, I think, to go to the heart of your question, Jason, um, that they want to like recycle pieces of it or they want to take uh, <laughs> my favorite idea. And I fully support this idea if you could pull it off, which would be to strip some of the components off of the space station that you don't need and move it out to one of the Lagrange points and use that as a real outpost and potentially use it as an assembly outpost as well as an observation place and a place to get even better microgravity than you currently get. That would be great, but I don't know that we have the rockets to get it out there. I don't know that we have the rockets to get uh, cargo and potentially people out to it on a regular basis. Um, so who knows what's going to happen. I think the interesting thing is going to see is what the Chinese are able to do with their space station. Uh, if we learned nothing from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's that America loves a challenge when it comes to the space race. Because even if the other side is ahead early, we're going to try to catch up and beat them. And the U.S. has a pretty good track record of that. Uh, so, you know, a lot of us joke around here that we're the biggest fans of the Chinese space program that could possibly be. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard stories, similar stories about uh, everybody's got some ideas. But for right now, it's sort of like letting it ride and seeing what happens, which is, you know, it's better than shutting it all down immediately. So that's good. Right. You know, everybody is just concerned of, you know, what are the Russians willing to do? They've got to try to keep trying to fly Soyuz's and progresses. That's an aging platform. It's been an aging platform for quite some time. You know, are they willing to do it? They have a dwindling pool of cosmonauts, the last I saw. So, you know, they're recycling uh, folks through that, that are experienced uh, cosmonauts, which is an amazing thing that you have these people that have been on station for you know, 200, 300, 400 days, or somebody like Guinea, uh, 
Gennady Padalka, that's the right name, he's been in space something like 900 days. And that's mind-boggling to me uh, that he's been up there that often. Um, but, uh, you know, Mike Suffredinian, one of the last things he did as IS pro- ISS program manager was really work to get the Russians involved with extending to 2024. And, you know, we've got to have everybody, and it's not just, you know, to throw that at the feet of the Russians. The Japanese have to be interested in it. The Europeans have to be interested in it. And the question is, every time this comes up, are we seeing the returns that we want to see for the science that we're getting with the money that we're putting into it? And every national government is involved with that. It's the, the I guess, the drawback of being an international thing is you've got so many parties that have to be involved, but that so is overwhelmingly outweighed by the benefits that we get of, of being a truly international space station. Cool. Steven, do you have anything else? No, I think it's great. I think it's, it's we're at this interesting time point of the station has been part of mankind's exploration for a long time now, and it feels like we're on you know, the verge of doing a lot more, but in reality, that's still a ways off. So I think it's going to continue to be an interesting thing to watch to see, like you said, the science and the returns that come out of it. Because there is a lot of stuff that's come out of the the work done on the space station that that does impact people here and does make real difference. And I think that uh, if that can continue, then we're all better for it. Yeah, and from a science operations perspective, we are learning how to do our jobs better every single day. We get feedback from our peers, from our customers, from our management, and from our NASA customers. I'm not a civil servant, I'm a contractor. We get feedback all the time about how we can serve all of our constituents better. And that's, you know, experience that you get, you know, that's invaluable. I think the next thing that uses this level of operational support for science in space is going to so vastly benefit from all the work that's been done in Moscow and Houston and Scuba and Munich and uh, in Montreal and, and in Huntsville. You know, that's all just wonderfully beneficial. And I think that's as beneficial as some of the sciences, honestly, because if you can figure out how to work together better and how to translate how you do all this science and engineering with minimal uh, crew impact and crew interaction, you know, that's very, very valuable. Cool. Well, Jeff, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun to, to hear about what, what you're doing and, and the work going on with the space station. Cool. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jason, I think that does it for uh, our episode this week. I think so. That was, uh, I think it was good. We did some uh, checklists. We talked to a guy who actually controls things on the International Space Station. Uh, that's not a bad fortnight, I think. I think I think we've done a good fortnight's work here. Yeah, that's right. Job well done. If we do say so ourselves, I'll let the readers be the the listeners be the judge of that, I suppose. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good. Uh, we we um, uh, I'm looking forward to doing more interviews as we go along. That's definitely one of the things we want to keep doing. Not every week, but or every fortnight, but uh, you know, every few episodes. So uh, getting people who are involved in space in some way or another is pretty awesome. Nice to hear from somebody who gets to tell us about uh, turning things on and off in the International Space Station. Pretty nice. That's a, that's a cool job. Yeah. 
If you want to find the links we've talked about this week, you can do that on our website at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 12. Those links are also in your podcast app of choice. Uh, feel free to get in touch if you have questions or comments or want to leave feedback. You can uh, email us from the website or you can get in touch with us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is at jsnell and writes at sixcolors.com. You can find me on Twitter at ismh or at 512pixels.net. And uh, until the next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.